0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13-18. I'm going to call this section, The Dead in Christ and the Alive in Christ Both Receive Their Glorified Bodies at the Lord's Return at the End of Time. Well, that's the long version of the title anyway. Our context is this, in the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul has praised the and exhorted the Thessalonians to godly living in the areas of sexual morality, loving their brother, and working hard and not being a lazy bum. So this is our context. He switches from saying all kinds of nice things about the Thessalonians. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm urging you on, I'm exhorting you to do more, but I know that you've already done a lot, that you're doing fine. And now he switches to the correction in their misunderstanding of certain doctrines that he's taught them earlier about the Lord's return. So... We start in verse thirteen, first Thessalonians four We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope now, of course, those who are asleep means those who have died already. Some people may have been some people in Thessalonia may have been martyred because of the persecution there that same persecution that ran Paul and Silas and Timothy out of town, so they had to escape at night when the mob came down on jason's house. Now, apparently, what the problem was here is that the Thessalonians were thinking, oh my goodness, people who died, they don't get a chance to, to participate in the glories of the heavenly kingdom because they're gone. No, Paul says, you don't need to grieve like the rest of mankind. He means like the rest of mankind who have no hope because the rest of mankind has no hope. That's the situation of every foolish atheist, agnostic, et cetera, in the world. They have no hope. It's just this life. And they proudly say it because they've got no hope in the future life. Here's what John Gill says, quote, having no notion of the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, had no hope of ever seeing their friends more, but looked upon them as entirely lost, as no longer in being, and never more to be met with, seen, and enjoyed. This drove them to extravagant actions, furious transports and downright madness. Who's he referring to? He's referring to pagans who die and have funerals. Furious transports and downright madness as to throw off their clothes, pluck off their hair, tear their flesh, cut themselves, and make baldness between their eyes for the dead. Now, I saw... A funeral in the East. It was in a city in western China. It was in a Muslim temple. I forgot the name of the city we were in, but it was a Muslim temple. And just by chance, there was a funeral going on in there, and they had the dead body held up above the pallbearers up in the air. And behind, there were mourners screaming and hollering and wailing and beating their breasts. There were women. And I immediately thought, aha, Is the, are these paid mourners to do all this? And I said, well, if they're paid, they're doing a darn good job. They're earning their money because that's the, the most heart-rending, heart-rending, anguished mourning I have ever heard in my life. I've never heard anything like it. don't think I ever will. Well, I don't know whether they were acting or not, but if you don't believe in the afterlife, that's what you face at the grave. And the grave is a pretty horrible thing to look at without, without Jesus. Now, the Thessalonians were concerned that if people died before Jesus came back, they would lose certain honors in the kingdom, maybe. And Paul is saying, look, you're not going to be like that. In fact, you're not going to be like, you're certainly not going to be like pagans who have no hope at all. Now, m- maybe the Thessalonians thought that the dead in Christ might not ever see him again. or they, or they, In other words, if they didn't understand the resurrection of the dead, they'd see a dead b- brother and they would say, oh, this person's missed out on seeing Jesus again. That's probably what they're thinking. But Paul is going to comfort them. He's going to say, look, living Christians have no priority over deceased Christians at the Lord's coming. In fact, we're going to see in a minute it's the dead Christians who are going to have priority over the living Christians. So don't grieve. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Now, Paul uses the example of Jesus' resurrection of, from the dead as to show that he is the head of the new redeemed Community, the new Adam, that as he rose will rise too. So, Paul is teaching the Thessalonians about the resurrection of the dead, a very important doctrine in Christian history. It's in all the creeds the Asthenation Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. You deny the resurrection of the dead, you are a first rate heretic. I say that in case there are any hyperpretors who might be listening to this. So, Jesus' resurrection is the example that gives hope to all Christians. It makes no sense for the head of the body to be resurrected if the body's not going to be resurrected too. Now, my home and Christian study Bible says, Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. I don't know what through Jesus means. The KGV has in That makes more sense to me. The same way God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in union with Jesus. In other words, you die your spirit goes to be in union with Jesus while your body li- lies in the grave waiting for this final resurrection moment. We go to First Thessalonians 4.15, For we say this to you by revelation from the Lord, we who are still alive in the Lord at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. So Paul said in Thessalonians, don't worry about your dead friends that have died already, your family members. They're not going to lose over us who remain alive. Now Paul says he has this by a revelation from the Lord. He had to have gotten this by direct revelation. There is no other teaching of the Lord anywhere that has to do with his coming back at the end of history. He never taught it anywhere else. Now, this distinguishes Christ's coming in judgment on Jerusalem in 870 because Jesus had taught a lot concerning that the Olivet discourse, Matthew 24 and the parallel passages. So, this coming is about the end of time. By contrast, if it was about 870, Paul would have needed no further revelation. But this he did need further revelation, so this is how we know this is referring to the end of time. Every time you see that word coming, you have to say, was well, this coming in A- in judgment in Jerusalem in eighty seventy, or is it coming at the end of time? And here it's the end of time. Now you could argue that Jesus is talking about the coming in eighty Jerusalem. He needed more revelation because the Olivet Discourse didn't say anything about the resurrection of the dead, and so this revelation that he received is just added revelation to the Olivet Discourse and is still concerning to 8070. But we'll see later on when it, it, it's obviously returning to the second return of Jesus because the resurrection of the dead is associated with the coming and there was no resurrection of the dead at 8070, contrary to all the hyperpreterist heretics. Adam Clark says these, uh, re, these revelations to Paul are, quote, doctrines of pure revelation as such as never could have been found out by human ingenuity. Now, that's the truth. It's almost off my radar, scar, radar scope, and I believe in Jesus, and I believe all his words, and I believe in Paul, so I believe it. But it's still hard for me to get my hands around it, around it because this is truly a momentous event. It's hard to picture. I had a skeptical background. I had trouble believing in a lot of things. I didn't believe in miracles for a long time until I saw some. I'm not talking about providential miracles. I'm talking about miracles that can't be explained by science or by medicine. And then, also, I didn't believe in demons either, but then when I saw some demon-possessed people face-to-face, I don't have trouble believing in demons, but this is something that I can't picture because it's going to be so momentous, but I do believe it. If you believe in Jesus, you have to believe it, and actually, it's a great thing to believe because it's so comforting because it's it's going to be the ultimate victory of Jesus over death. Now, notice the fact that Paul says he received this by revelation. Note what that implies about the authority of the Apostle Paul. The commentator Ellicott says that this is, quote, a most direct claim to plenary inspiration, and it certainly is. Now, that is another issue that comes up a lot. Paul says this, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming, and people a lot of times will say, well, see, Paul expected to be alive at the Lord's coming but of course he wasn't, so therefore he made a mistake. Well, that's not a proper interpretation. As John Gill and Adam Clark say, that, that we there does not mean that Paul expected to be alive when Jesus returned. Paul is identifying himself with Christians in general, as John Gill says, more particularly those Christians who will be alive at Jesus' coming. He's, uh, he's saying that we Christians, some of, uh, some of us Christians, will be alive at Jesus' coming. Adam Clark says that it's impossible that a man under such direct influence of the Holy Spirit could have made such a mistake in thinking that he would be alive at the Lord's coming. The Lord never told him that. He was just talking about we Christians, of all the Christians in the world, that subset of those Christians who were still alive at the Lord's coming will have no advantage. Here's what Ellicott says about this quote. His converts are strongly under the impression that they will be alive at the coming and that it will be the worse for the departed. Therefore, St. Paul, becoming all things to all men, identifies himself with them, assumes that it will be as they expected, and proves the more vividly the fallacy of the Thessalonians' fears. In other words, Ellicott says, Paul is identifying himself with the Thessalonians to say, hey, any of us who happen to still be alive at the Lord's coming, we will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. So don't worry about those who have fallen asleep. They're going to be Okay. So anyway, no, Paul didn't make a mistake, he's just, he's talking about the Christians who are alive at the Lord's coming. Now, the Thessalonians who thought that alive Christians would have an advantage over dead Christians at Jesus' coming, they thought that the alive Christians would get greater glories in the kingdom. This resulted in two bad things. One is they would feel sorry for their dead friends and feel like, oh, they've been cheated. Their Christianity was a disappointment. And the other bad thing that would happen is they themselves would be afraid to die because they'd say, oh, we're going to miss out on the glories of the kingdom if we die. And so now they'd be more afraid of death and Christians are not supposed to be afraid of death. So this was a relatively serious error that Paul was trying to correct. He mentions that those who are alive will have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. Of course, that means those who have died. Asleep is a a euphemism for die. And Barnes has got a great quote about falling asleep he says quote the death of the christian is a calm and gentle slumber it is not annihilation it is not the extinction of hope it is like general repose when we lie down at night and when we hope to awake again in the morning it is like the quiet sweet slumber of the infant why then should the christian be afraid to die is he afraid to close his eyes and slumber why dread the night the stillness of death is he afraid of the darkness, the silence, the chilliness of the midnight hour when his senses are locked in repose? Why should death to him appear so terrible? Is the slumbering of an infant an object of terror? That's, I thought that was a wonderful quote. We now turn to 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Paul continues, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, there's the advantage. They're not going to lose a thing by dying before the alive Thessalonians. They're going to rise first. They're going to be at the head of the resurrection line. For the Lord himself, this means the Lord physically. That's why Paul says himself. He means physically, as Grant and Gill say. Jesus will not return as a ghost, but as a physical body. We see this in Luke 24:15 and 36. 24:15 and Luke says this. And while they were discussing and arguing, and that's the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, Jesus Himself came near and began to walk along with them. Jesus Himself. Notice the Himself. Luke 24:36. And as they were saying these things, He Himself again. Notice the Himself. He Himself stood among them. Jesus physically himself stood among those disciples on the road to Emmaus, and here Paul says, for the Lord himself. So it's going to be the same Jesus that the disciples knew on earth. That's who's going to descend from heaven with a shout. He's going to have the same ident- numerical identity as, as, they, as the theologians like to say or the ph- philosophers like to say is the Jesus that was on earth. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Now, the shout represents that Jesus is a victorious king. John Gill says that Jesus is shouting out commands to the host of heaven. But there are some options as to who gives the shout. It could be Jesus, as Gill says, but Albert Barnes denies that. It could be the multitude of Christians who are shouting. They would lift up their voices like that of an army rushing to the conflict. So we don't know who the shout is. Here's a quote from Ellicott. It is not necessary to inquire what the command may be or to whom issued, inasmuch as the word does not always imply any particular orders, nor who is represented as uttering it. The intention is only to convey the notion of the stirring noise in the midst of which the Lord will descend. Now, Paul says that along with this shout will be the Archangel's voice, it could mean that's the third option for what shout is. A shout of Jesus, a shout of the multitude, or a shout of the, by the archangels. I don't know. Well, who is the archangel? Well, there's only one archangel mentioned by name in the scripture. That's Jude 1, nine. This is according to Grant and Barnes. Jude 1, nine says this, Yet Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, did not bear Dare bring an abusive condemnation against him, but said the Lord rebuke you. Now that's a quote from some apocalyptic literature, and that's complicated, and I'm not going to get into that. But I just noticed that Michael the Archangel is mentioned. Now, even that's the only place it's mentioned. However, seven angels is, are mentioned as having preeminence over other angels in the scriptures. Barnes points that out in Revelation 8 2. John the Apostle says this, Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. So these are the seven angels that had the seven judgment trumpets. They're not called archangels, but they seem like they have preeminence. However, there is no proof that these seven are archangels. That's just an assumption that people make. And as Barnes says, Whether there is more than one to whom this name appropriately belongs, it is impossible now to determine and is not material. All right, not only at this second coming of Jesus will there be a shout, will there be the archangel's voice, also there will be the trumpet of God. Now, that's the so-called last trumpet. We get that from 1 Corinthians 15:52. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will, we will be changed. You can see the commonality of language there ties 1 Thessalonians 4 with 1 Corinthians 15. Now let's look at some options concerning this trumpet. The trumpet gathers the resurrected dead and those who are still living. That's not really an option, that's that's basically what it is. The trumpet gathers the resurrected dead and those still living. Now to keep this discussion a little bit simpler, I'm gonna call I'm gonna point out I'm gonna label two groups of people, those who are dead at Jesus' return. Let's say dead at the return of Christ and those alive at the return of Christ. Okay? Two groups of people. The dead will be resurrected. The dead at the return of Christ. The dead in Christ at the return of Christ will be resurrected. And those alive in Christ at the return of Christ will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. The dead will be raised incorruptible and will be changed. That's from 1 Corinthians 15, 52. So those are your two groups. The trumpet blows. Some people say that... That trumpet is a call to a solemn convocation. Everybody's coming together to be with Jesus. Whether physically or symbolically, I don't know. I don't know how you have a physical trumpet at the return of Jesus, unless it's a sound that sounds like a trumpet somehow. I don't know. But this call to a solemn convocation can be gathered from the Old Testament use of the word trumpet. Numbers 10:2 two, make two trumpets of hammered silver to summon the community and to have the camp set out. Every time Israel moved in the wilderness, there was a trumpet that blew two silver trumpets. Numbers 10.10, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and your fellowship offerings, that's peace offerings, fellowship sacrifices, that's peace offerings, and on your joyous occasions, your appointed festivals and the beginning of each of the months. They will serve as a reminder for you before your God, I am Yahweh your God. So you blew the trumpet in order to move when the camp set out. The trumpets were blown when they were about to have uh, sacrifices and festivals, and also in the new new moon in the beginning of each month. Numbers thirty-one six. Moses sent one thousand from each tribe to war. They went with Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, in whose care were the holy objects and signal trumpets. Signal trumpets. So you see, the trumps were used to signal for war. So they were used for announcements of festival things, and they were. Also, a call to war, to gather together for war. So anyway, it was a solemn convocation that you're coming together for, either for a festival or to fight a battle. A trumpet is to call the elect together. And so that's the idea here. The last trumpet is calling us all together. Now, Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice that's the dead in Christ. This is Christian dead. No mention is made of the non-Christian dead. We'll take that up in a minute. But only the dead in Christ he's referring to here. They will rise first. And after they are risen, then the living Christians at Jesus' return, they will be changed in a twinkling of, a lie of an eye from a corruptible body to an incorruptible body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So there's your order. Resurrection first, changing second. Resurrection of the dead Christians first. The changing of the alive Christians second. After this, these two events happen... The resurrected dead and the alive, changed Christians, transformed Christians shall be caught up together with Christ. Now, we have a problem here. We got Jesus coming from heaven. He comes with his saints. How do we know he comes with his saints? Because in First Thessalonians 3.13, we read this. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, I'm assuming that's not referring to 8070. It could be coming with all his holy ones, all of his angels, and that happened at 8070 as you read the Olivet Discourse. But since the context here is 1 Thessalonians 4, which is obviously the second coming of Christ, I'm assuming that 1 Thessalonians 3 is talking about Jesus coming with all of his saints, his Christian saints, not his holy angels, but his holy Christians. All right, so Jesus is coming back with his, his saints from heaven. You got resurrected, or you've got dead Christians lying in the grave. They've got to come together somehow. So I assume that for the first thing that happens is that the resurrection occurs simultaneously when Jesus reunites the, the disembodied spirits who are coming from heaven. He reunites these with the graves, with the bodies in the graves, forming a glorified Christian. And then these glorified Christians rise up to meet Christ along with those who are still alive at Jesus' coming. Together they go meet the Lord. Now, we still have one group of people left out of this scenario, and that's the dead not in Christ, the unsaved unbelievers. Now, Paul doesn't say anything about that here because it doesn't suit his purpose. His purpose is to encourage the Thessalonians that they don't need to worry about them dying or their friends dying and getting getting cheated in the, <laughs> in the second coming. That's what he's mainly talking about. He wasn't talking about the judgment of nonbelievers. But let me read you a quote from Barnes concerning the dead unbelievers what place in this series of wonders will be assigned for the resurrection of the wicked is not mentioned here the object of the apostle did not lead him to avert to that since his purpose was to comfort the afflicted by the assurance that their pious friends would rise again and would suffer no disadvantage by the fact that they had died before the coming of the redeemer from John 5:28 and 29, however, it seems most probable that they will be raised at the same time with the righteous and will ascend with them to the place of judgment in the air. John 5:28, 29 says this, do not be amazed at this, now this is Jesus speaking, a time is coming, do not be amazed because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice, that all means all, it means Christians and non-Christians, they will hear his voice, verse 29, John 5, and come out those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. Now notice there's no thousand-year gap between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked in these, this verse. That's one of the weaknesses of the pre-mill theory, which does have such a thousand-year gap, which I don't believe in. I'm not pre-mill, so I don't have any problem with this, this verse. I believe it means exactly what it says. I believe that the resurrected dead will the the re- resurrected non-Christians who are dead will happen at approximately the same time as the Christians are resurrected, and then the general judgment will take place. Now, Barnes has that general judgment taking place in the air. Ellicott has it taken on the earth. Again, that's a detail that's not told us. So that's is why people disagree so much on eschatology, because there are a lot of details and timing events that are left out, but I've given you reasonable possibilities there, I think. We go to First Thessalonians 4.17. Then, that means after the dead in Christ are raised first, then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds, with the dead in Christ who've been resurrected and had their spirits united with their bodies and risen again and glorified. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with these dead resurrected Christians formerly dead, resurrected Christians will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Now where will we be with the Lord? There's two options in heaven. This is Grant's solution. This is clear enough that our portion is eternally heavenly in the Father's house with the Lord where he is. Not to leave his presence again to return to live on earth as some have imagined. Well, but it also could mean we will always be with the Lord on earth because that would assume that Jesus continues downward when he's, he's coming from heaven with his saints, and he's coming downward. And then he would take up his heavenly reign with the saints on earth, a earth to be sure that is redeemed from its corruption to decay, a wonderful earth, no more fire ants, no more Asian murder hornets, There seems to have been a trend these days. I've read several articles that that talks about our final state being on earth and not in heaven. And I think that makes a lot of sense because why would God create this earth and just leave it empty? I mean, surely the earth has got some place in God's redemption. It's the only planet in the whole universe that is fit for life. It's beautiful. It's been created beautiful. Why would God not redeem it? And then why would God not let us live on it? Look at all those out-of-body experiences. They always talk about the beautiful nature and the colors and all that. I have no doubt that we're going to be on earth in some some form or shape. I think that those who are so apodictically certain that our final state is in heaven as Grant is, I think they're being a little too confident about that, in my humble opinion. Now, notice there's two issues here. One is, is the judgment going to take place in the air on the earth? And the second issue is whether our final state will be in heaven or on the earth. They're sort of related, but not exactly the same. Now, this phrase, we who are still alive will be caught up together in the air, that word, Carter, I think it's harpazo in the Greek, That's the I think it's the only time it's mentioned in the New Testament, it means rapture, or at least the Latin translation, translated over into English, comes out rapture. And, of course, I try not to use that word because it has so many connotations because people build up an ideology over it, dispensationalist, futurist, pretribbers. And I, I, don't, I don't hold that eschatology, and so I don't use that term, rapture. I like caught up better, because there's less chance of misunderstanding when you use it. So we are will be caught up. Now that phrase, caught up, assumes, of course, is after we've been changed in the twinkling of an eye, it's according to 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52, which I'll read again. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed In a moment, in the blink of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. So there's the resurrection of the already dead when Christ comes back, and there's the changing of the still alive when Christ comes back, and then we're together, both caught up. Now, this caught up sounds like that there has to be a certain amount of power necessary to raise the living to the clouds, raise the dead, for that matter. Yeah, there's there's a lot of power involved. That's why the word caught up is used. We don't just float up there naturally. Now this word clouds, we will be caught up to meet those who are still alive at Jesus is coming, or we'll be caught up with those who are resurrected at Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, the resurrected believers and we'll be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord. Now in the clouds has a couple of options as to how you interpret that. It could mean those things in the sky that contain water. Or it could be we're caught up in such numbers and groupings so as to resemble clouds, it's kind of ranked like clouds. We're caught up, cloud-like, into the air. Well, I don't know. I've, it could be either one. Actually, doesn't really matter. We're going to be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. Now, here there's an option as to whether Jesus transacts his judgments while we're in the air. Barnes says there's not a root enough room on earth to do this. But on the other hand, you could say Jesus, after meeting the transformed alive Christians and the resurrected dead Christians, he meets with them in the air, then he descends back to earth. Now, Ellicott gives a quote backing that up. He says here, it, referring to air, air is only used in contrast with the ground. and means on the way from heaven whence he comes. Of course, not to dwell there, but to accompany him to his judgment seat on the earth. Ellicott quotes the famous Chrysostom again and says this, quote, St. Chrysostom says, when the king cometh into a city... They that are honorable proceed forth to meet him, but the guilty await their judge within. And I really like that metaphor because you got a conquering king coming in. The big shots in the city, the people who hold the keys to the city, they come out to meet the king coming in. Well, likewise, that would refer to the resurrected Christian dead and the, those alive at Jesus' coming. They meet out. They go up to meet their king, and they escort him back into the city, i.e. back into the earth. And then those who are in jail down there, they get their judgment. They get resurrected and judged. We go now to First Thessalonians 4.18. Paul ends up the chapter by saying this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, this is obvious what the therefore is there for. Since Jesus is coming back and he's going to honor those who are already dead with the, a prior resurrection before the changing of the alive Christians, therefore they have priority. Therefore, you don't need to worry about your dead Friends and relatives Thessalonians, so encourage one another with these words. Be happy about what's going to happen. Don't think your departed loved ones are gone forever. You will see them in the resurrection. Now, Adam Clark points out that it's ironic that they are to encourage one another that their loved ones will be at the judgment seat of God. And that's because Christians don't look at the judgment seat of God as a fearful thing because they know their sins are forgiven. We are not afraid of God. We long to see him. There's going to be a lot of people on this earth that are going to be scared to death to see God when they face Him with their sins uncovered and they face Him naked in their wretched sin and filth. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished 1 Thessalonians 14. In our next audio, we will take up 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1-11. through Concerning the day of the Lord and further eschatological matters, I hope you stay tuned for that one. I hope you enjoyed this audio.